Pascal Timbury had his feet flat on the ground, as if he was scared the whole place might tilt under him and tip him into the sky. He waited until we leaned back in our chairs. It was bad, Pascal Timbury said. It was really bad. But you're here now, so it's all right. And he choked a little bit, not like hysteria, but like happiness, as if someone were getting married. Gonzo passed him a chocolate bar, and he sort of enveloped it, didn't even seem to bite it, just shoved the whole thing into his face and swallowed, and there was a bit of brown spittle on the corner of his mouth, and his tongue picked that up, and that was Gonzo's chocolate bar, all done. Pascal Timbury didn't say anything like thank you or that's good, but it seemed to make him happier. Sometimes these survivors can't say thank you or really anything like it, because if they do, they just come apart at the seams. So Piper Ninety checked in, which is to say, Sally Culpepper and Jim Hepzibah checked in from a position a shade to our right, and Annie the Ox and Tobmary Trent called in from somewhere to the left, and Samuel P was watching all of us from the high tower and relaying what he saw to a few more guys with long guns, and we were fairly well covered. And we told Pascal Timbury that there'd be rescue on the way any time now. And could he see that big old rotten tooth of a thing coming around the hill? That was Piper Ninety, and Pascal Timbury said he could. And finally, he said thank you, and started to cry, which was a big relief to all of us. And got up out of his deck chair and hugged us, which was moderately snotty and disgusting, but nice too. We found him a room in the south tower. And he said, "Could he possibly have a garden allotment rather than a hot tub?" And the exec said, "Yes." And he said he'd be glad to work the rest of the garden too. And they said that would be okay as long as he took orders from Bill Sands and the horticulture department. And we settled him in. He burned his old clothes and bought a huge number of cigarettes, and that was all good. He went to the park and stared at the kids and the execs and wept a bit more, then stood looking back down the pipe and admiring the sunset, and that was all good too. He made a few friends, another refugee called Fabian, a maintenance worker from Piper Ninety called Task. I have no idea what kind of a name that is, but he went by Larry and had a dog called Dora, who handled the roses. And a young widow called Ariane. Ariane had the strangest hair; it was thick and resilient, and she wore it short in a sort of helmet. It made her look all the time like a backing singer for one of those groups with a lava lamp fixation. Larry Tusk flirted with her, and she flirted back in a very polite way, as if neither of them wanted to do anything about it, but they were no way going to be so rude as to say so. Pascal Timbury didn't flirt with anyone; he just smiled his little light smile and petted the dog. And these three sat around and stared at the horizon and worked in the garden until it was dark. And then, after hours, they consulted the maps and they got into ghost geography. This here, Pascal Timbury would say, pointing at a shallow space off to one side of Piper Ninety. This was Olencester. Population fifteen thousand, light industrial. 
They made prefab pizza boxes and linens. Pascal Timbry was obsessed with memory. He was never going to let those people fade. He wanted to know about all the places that weren't there anymore, and they would take a buggy and go out with one of the teams and stand in the space which used to be the town hall and walk through it. Here, there used to be a fine example of 19th century panelling. They had a painting by Stanhope Forbes here, and the council chamber here was famous for a ceiling mosaic. Here's a postcard. And here truly would be a picture of some grotty civic chamber, and Pascal Timbery would point out that it was probably the most ugly example of the kind known to man, but he didn't care. He just wanted to remember and they'd walk through the whole non-existent town, remembering places they'd never been, which weren't there any more, step for step. And gradually, more and more people went along, as if it were a church service. This is the world in memoriam. But no one ever saw Pascal Timbery eat. In all that time, we never did, except when he ate Gonzo's chocolate bar in one go, it seems stupid now, but we never wondered about that. If we thought about it at all, we imagined he must have been injured during the reification. Maybe he couldn't swallow properly. Maybe his jaw was broken and he leaked. Maybe he'd eaten things which a right-thinking man normally wouldn't eat, and now he was ashamed to eat in front of people. That was a matter for him— there were a whole lot of people round about then with a whole lot of weird problems, the kinds of problems which would have been uncommon or even alarming back before the reification, but which now seemed just about ordinary. And then one day, Larry Tusk couldn't find his dog, just couldn't find her, went walking around the place, calling hither and yon with a little scrap of biscuit and some cheese, that poor scrawny little dog loved cheese, even the ghastly schlop they made on Piper 90, even Rory Trevin, who was a cheese right back in the real world, but what the hell was he supposed to use to make the stuff now, when the buffalo were evil and a cow was a distant memory? When even the grass could turn around and bite you with sharp, angry little mouths? So Larry Tusk went to walking, and as he passed Pascal Timbry's room, he heard a familiar yip, and he figured the dog was stuck in there and Pascal didn't know. So he went in, and there on the bed was Pascal Timbery, with a great bloated tummy, and from this bulge there came the barking of the dog. Larry Tusk went crazy. It actually wasn't about the dog. It was about this thing lying there on the bed. A thing which looked human and talked human and hugged human, but which could open up and envelop you like a snake. Pascal Timbery made a noise as if he were trying to speak, maybe to say something like, I'm really sorry I ate your dog, which might or might not have been a good thing to say, and surely it wouldn't have been the most tactful sentiment at that time. But Larry Tusk didn't give him any opportunity to discuss the dog-eating or the whole business of Pascal Timbery being a monster from beyond the fireside. The thing with the distended stomach was other, and Larry Tusk wasn't having any of it. 
he just up and hit Pascal Timbery in the head with a fire extinguisher, and kept going until Pascal was basically a smear. And then he stuck his hand into Pascal Timbery's corpse and pulled out Dora the dog, all smeared in yuck and most unhappy at the strangeness of it all. We found him in Commissary Three, feeding her little bites of meat, which were worth a week's pay to him, each and every one. Sometimes, the nightmares look like people. On the upside, the dog was fine. Dogs don't fret. She hadn't liked being swallowed and kept in a stinky, airless little place, of course, and she doesn't like darkness to this day. Larry leaves the light on for her. But broadly speaking, she was just happy to see Larry again and delighted to be bathed and fed the best food Larry could get his hands on, and for everyone to be so pleased to see her. On the downside. It raised a question no one was prepared for about the unreal people and what they were, because we had liked Pascal Timbery, and if someone ordinary and mad had eaten Dora the dog, and Larry Tusk had beaten them to death with a fire extinguisher, that would have been murder, albeit provoked. And the thing is that for all that Pascal was a monster, he was clearly a thinking, feeling monster. And that made him at least most of the way to being a person. And if he'd come clean about his dietary requirements, well, maybe something could have been done. Although we might just have killed him out of fear. I'm not saying Pascal Timbery was wrong to hide what he was. I'm saying that if he hadn't, things would have gone differently. That night. We sat in the Stormside pub and argued about whether the whole thing was more or less awful and imponderable than the fact that the world had come to an end nearly a year ago, and most of the people we had ever known were dead. And as we sat there, concluding that whichever of these things was worse, both were irredeemably awful and would shadow our lives for ever and ever until the last syllable of recorded time. Pubs are not good places for this kind of conversation. There arrived a lumpy, water-stained parcel containing an elderly cherry pie. A cherry pie is not something which ages well. It is ephemeral. From the moment it emerges from the oven, it begins a steep decline, from too hot to edible to cold to stale to mouldy, and finally to a post-pie state. Where only history can tell you that it was once considered food, the pie is a parable of human life. But this pie had been subjected to the kind of abuse which no pastry of any kind should have to put up with. It had been tempest-tossed. It had been a brave pie, but ultimately an ordinary one. It was not a pie of steel. It had split and withered. The filling had smeared the outer skin with red, sugary juices. This pie was a casualty. The only thing to be done with it was to put it in the ground with other brave pies and give it honor and say a prayer for its humble and unselfish shortcrust soul, and that prayer would be well deserved, earned in battle and paid for in confectionery suffering, because this pie. 
fallible and ultimately unequal to the mighty task set before it, a task beyond what is achievable by mortal pies, bore a message from far away. The letter which accompanied it had run and bleached. Whatever was written on the paper was long vanished, but the pie itself was made of sterner stuff. It read simply, For Gonzo, and underneath, From Ma. The parcel was stamped with the just legible frank of Cricklewood Cove Post Office and dated just a few weeks before. Cricklewood Cove had survived the go-away war. That night, I took Leah out into the roof garden and proposed to her. She said yes. We're doing the deed next week. Tonight, washed of garlic sausage and clad in my finest, I'm going to Matchingham with an L-plate on my chest, and Gonzo and Bone Brisket and Jim Hepzibah, and also, at my insistence, and because I value my life, Sally Culpepper and Annie the Ox, and all the boys are going to get me horribly drunk and celebrate my last days of bachelorhood. Gonzo completes his sweep on the milk buggy. No monsters, no refugees, just grass and trees, and Sally Culpepper calls time. Stern duties involving makeshift ales and moonshine await us. Good soldiers all, we know how to obey orders. Matchingham is a sorry excuse for a town. In fact, it is not a town at all, but a collection of ramshackle houses and hotels and hostels and hostiles, which has sprawled together into a sort of disobation stretched along the Jorgman pipe, like towns used to stretch out along a road or river. It has exactly nothing going for it, except that it is the biggest place for a thousand miles in any direction, which isn't actually moving along on giant caterpillar tracks. And it is notionally possible to make money here so as to go back along the pipe to a real town. There are supposed to be real towns, even cities, growing up back west. Or even buy a small holding in the new agricultural areas around the pipe and make some sort of life. Every town like Matchingham ever in history has had this kind of raison d'etre, and few are the people who have actually made it out and done these things. It's like the lottery. Everyone knows someone who has won something, and no one actually wins themselves. Somehow or other, the big break, the dream, stays out of reach. People here just get older and greyer and a tad more bitter, and eventually they're not around anymore, and no one asks why. It is the kind of place where people know how to smash a glass and use it in a fight without getting sliced to ribbons. It is therefore not the kind of place anyone has a great deal to say about. Matchingham has less history than a styrofoam cup, and the closest it gets to a cathedral or a historic centre is a grimy cruciform monument on the way in, an advertisement for a blasphemously themed strip club. Matchingham isn't even a feeder town. There's nothing for it to feed. We are on the back of Gonzo's buggy, destined for a bar called the Ace of Thighs, and from the name you would guess it is in the bad part of town. You would be wrong. Matchingham doesn't have a nice part of town, but if it did, 
the Ace of Thighs would be in it, and the way you know that is that the name of the bar is a word game, not actually a pun as such, but getting that way, and this kind of elevated humour is restricted to Matchingham's Golden Elite.